we just wanted one person in line. Yep. That's all we thought. If there's one person in line and the founder story is the same thing when they talked about opening their very first restaurant, if there was one customer that came through and so Megan and I, you spend a year preparing for this. And so all the time, the energy, the money that goes into it and one person is there and we had three people spend the night because we give away free chicken salad for a year and they showed up that night and it was just this huge relief. Okay, we at least have three people tomorrow. <laughs> uh, but when we got there that morning, there was a line already around the building. Wow. And it was just huge relief that we now have that. So now it goes into time to get into action and your brain almost doesn't have time to process. Yeah. And the rest of it's really a blur. Yep. The Chamber of Commerce is there, ribbon cutting, you open the doors, guests start flowing in and immediately the fires start coming yeah. and the corporate team is there to help and they do a great job. The trainers, they hold your hand, uh, but everybody's looking to you when there's questions, when there's problems. Yeah. And so it's just bouncing nonstop and you literally do not stop moving until the doors lock at eight, the team cleans at nine and then you decompress for an hour. It was just a... I completely, Maggie had done a lot of openings as part of her time on the marketing team. Yeah. But when you're the one responsible, it's a very different dynamic. Hello, everyone. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. Hey guys, it's Chris. Thank you so much for joining me today on The Fort. I have John Schisler with me today, who is the owner of J&M Hospitality, which is a franchisee to Chicken Salad Chick. They have five stores open in Tarrant County and are expanding. Uh, today's episode is so awesome. We talk about the moment that they realized that they were going to get into the franchisee world um, with little to no experience. We talk about everything it took to open the first store. We even go through the details of what it was like on day one when they opened their first restaurant. We talk about the growth to five. We talk about the challenges that COVID has presented the restaurant industry. We talk about everything that he has learned and a lot about uh, what the restaurant industry is going to look like going forward. Today was a fascinating episode. John is a, uh, a leader in the industry, and I learned a ton today. So thank you so much for continuing to join me, and I hope you enjoy the episode. So John and I have had um, this meeting a couple years in the making. We have a lot of mutual friends. John's story is awesome. He's uh, one of the fastest growing franchisees here in Fort Worth. And so today's the first day we actually get to sit down with each other. So thank you for joining me today. Thanks, Chris. It's a pleasure and looking forward to it. Yeah. Let's just start with your story, kind of how you grew up and what got you into doing what you do today at Chicken Salad Jig. Yeah. The short answer is a lot of bad decisions, yeah. uh, things that went wrong, Yeah, uh, but grew up kind of moved around quite a bit with my dad was in business and we just moved different towns and settled in Mobile, Alabama okay. for a while. That uh, was kind of my introduction to the deep South and okay. then spent a lot of years in Florida, but uh, went to school at Auburn Okay, and that's where Chicken Salad Chick actually started. So that was my connection uh, with the brand on that front, but grew up doing a bunch of different things and, and working a lot and yeah. always had that 
bug to work for myself. Didn't know what that would look like. Went to school, like I said, at Auburn, graduated, didn't know what to do, but got a job at the university. And that was a fascinating experience working at a large public institution. When you're in school at a place, it's <laughs> great. When you see the backside of it, yeah, you realize it. there's there's more to life than that just working as part of that machine. Yeah. Um, and so some opportunities led my wife and I to get involved with Chicken Salad Chick, her involvement there uh, in Auburn and took the leap into franchising here in Fort Worth. Had zero experience with restaurants, zero experience with franchising, uh, but was young and ready to work hard. And so the rest is kind of history. Being naive can sometimes be your best friend. I tell people if I had known then what I know now, I wouldn't have done it. Yep. I tell people just in some of the developments we've done things is once you know how it's done, you might not ever do it to begin with. So <laughs> yeah. Yep. So your wife was working there and was there like, were y'all kind of, Hey, we should maybe do this or like, how did the opportunity come up? Yeah. The, the biggest thing for her was the moving back to Texas. Okay. She just wanted to get back to Texas, born and raised and whatever that looked like, she was on board with yeah. it. Uh, but she was in Auburn for an internship. Yep. And would, would just eat lunch there at Chicken Salad Chick all the time and love the food. Job came open in the marketing department and she, marketing background, thought this would be a great fit. I love the food. And uh, she would drag me along to go eat with her. If you haven't been in, it's very feminine, the the decor and the atmosphere. Uh, not a place that I would have found myself going to. Yeah. But her, her time there, we got to meet the owners that were franchising. We got to meet the founders and hear their story and, and see the opportunity from that. And so it kind of led to some jokes in the hallway between Maggie and the founders of when you're ready for Texas, we'll be there. Yeah. Uh, and then they told her, well, hey, we're opening up the Metroplex. And so the conversations got serious. We did some due diligence and decided to take the leap. So did they, they kind of came to Maggie and said, Fort Worth on the table. Did y'all have to apply for it or it was kind of because of the relationship? It was kind of yours if you wanted it. Yeah, we still went through the application process yeah. and they took us to lunch and it was funny. We sat down and they just said, we're going to convince you not to do this. Yeah. And that was the interview process <laughs> telling us why we shouldn't do yeah. this. And then if we thought we still wanted to move forward, go ahead. And we've got, Maggie's got some great family members that are involved in business and great mentors to us. And so we started talking to them. It got serious uh, before going back to uh, Chicken Salad Chicken, discussing the opportunity in earnest. So once you had both come to grips that you were going to do it, you had met, they had convinced you not to do it. You're still going to do it. What what kind of happens from there? Do you sign a contract? Do you go through training? Like what what? How do you become a franchisee? Yeah. And this was a big learning process for us. I couldn't have told you what a franchise was until she started working there. Yeah. And so for us, it was a lot of asking the questions, but there's an application process. They disclose the franchise document yep. and the advice we got, have an attorney review it. And, and then you sit down and, and really most of them will tell you they're they're negotiable, but they're not negotiable. Yeah. Um, but then we view it, make sure it's something we're comfortable with, sign the agreement, identify the territory. And then it's that's where the negotiation came in. We knew we wanted more than one store. Okay. So let's sign an area agreement. How do we identify that territory? How many stores fit? Yep. Um, it's some of them give and take. I mean, they asked, what do you want? And so we went in and I sat down with Kevin, <laughs> the founder, and was like, I want all of Tarrant County, I want 10 stores. And he looked at us and he's like, not going to do that. <laughs> and he said, but I, I know where y'all are. I've been in your shoes and I'm going to take a chance and I'll give you three stores. Here's your market. 
And so we said, done, we'll take it. That's uh, awesome. So yeah. you, you signed the contract and then what? You move down here and you have to start finding locations? That's right. So part of that, the agreement is a development schedule. How many stores they want you to open and how much time. Yep. And, and that process takes a while, especially for a, a market like DFW, a brand like Chicken Salad Chick that had zero presence here. Yeah. A lot of work that we had to do. So we had a rough timeline. We moved here summer 2015. Okay. And just started searching. We found a real estate broker, started looking at sites. And then it took us a full year to find a site, negotiate a lease, do construction and get open. Do they give you at the franchisor level, like guidelines for what the right spot should look like? Or is that up to you? They do. And and one of the unique challenges of being with a young brand like Chicken Salad Chick was, is there really was not a, they have some rough parameters, but it's really difficult to say how that applies in other parts of the country. The core markets, the Southeast, very different. So when we looked at construction costs and everything, the the franchise document had some numbers that looked pretty good. When you come to DFW, those numbers don't work. And so some of that was learning that process. They give you a rough, and we were fortunate, they just hired a director of real estate. He was from the area and was working in the Pier 1 building in downtown Fort Worth. So he knew the area really well. Yeah, And he was a huge, huge asset to us um, in terms of just where to look and convincing corporate. They're based in the Southeast. They didn't know much about this market. How did you How did you know you had found your first location in a year? Like, wh- when did you know, like, okay, we found it? Yeah. So it's a, <laughs> it's a, a multi-part story. We thought we knew where we wanted to be. Yeah. Maggie went to TCU. She kind of knew parts of the area. We thought this is the hub. We want to be Central Fort Worth. Uh, our broker encouraged us to look north okay. in Alliance. Yep. And we really liked it, but we knew the spot. We were driving over Heritage Trace Parkway up on 35. And you look around and it's like that Lion King thing. Like, look at everything <laughs> over there. That's yours. And you saw nothing but rooftops. Yep. And we knew if there's people there then they can come. And and really that was it. That was the defining moment, just seeing the density uh, of of the house tops and what was coming. Yeah. I thought, if we're going to make a splash in a brand new market, we're not a destination yet. We need to go to the destination. Yep. And so found the shopping center and we knew it was just going to be, it was a target right there. And that's what we want. We want the target mom and we knew people were there. And so it was, it was a pretty quick, we realized that's the spot for us. I love it. Before we get into the build out and everything, how did you um, finance the first one? Did you raise money from friends and family or people that could be kind of supporters or have a professional investor? What did that look like? Yeah. So we that was another one of those processes for us that was didn't know where to start, where to go. And so just started calling around, talking to people. And we found out early on that banks do not like financing restaurants. Yeah. <laughs> Our only collateral is equipment. And that's a minor, minor part of of the finish out and especially a restaurant that's a startup that is young two people that have never worked in a restaurant a day in their lives and so we knew pretty quick that that wasn't going to be a viable option yeah the size of our first deal was pretty small and we thought the best way was friends and family okay and so we just started working some contacts and we had a, a small list of family members that were great to get us started yep. and then it opened some doors talk to this person talk to this person and uh, it was a learning curve for us too yeah. uh, of how to structure a deal yep one of my wife's good friends he had seen a lot of deals and was really helpful in guiding us 
through that process. He also invested with us. So he was the main <laughs> driver. So all the other investors can thank him for the terms. Yeah. Um, but just to think about how that works. Yeah. What's the risk for them? What payback do they need? How it should be structured? How we can still benefit on the backside of the deal? We don't have to get into like the the details of your structure. I know that's private, but like at a high level, is it, you know, you get your money back and we split after that kind of like a real estate deal or how does it work in a restaurant kind of fundraise? Yeah, the typical route that we've seen and that we ended up going with is the waterfall structure. Okay. So we have our carry in the beginning is very, very small. Yep. Uh, the risk up front for an unproven needs to be rewarded. And so once the payback occurs, then that distribution uh, flips a little bit. And we're still a minority at that point. Uh, but then once there's a return on the backside, then uh, we flip to become the majority. Cool. Um, and then in this too, the, the same thread, restaurants are just risky. And yeah. so these investors wanted to protect their right. If we're going to take this risk now, we want rights, future rights. And so that was a big thing, that first agreement to say, You've supported us on this first one. If it's successful, we're going to give you that that same opportunity. And making our relationship people, and, yeah. and so for us, we wanted that to be something that's mutually beneficial for everybody. Yeah, and so it was it was it was helpful. Okay, so you get the uh, the space leased. Do you then go back to the franchisor and like they have an architect and design the whole thing, or is that on you? How do you know how to design it? They have. This is one of the. Biggest benefits of the franchise, I think. Okay. They have that all ready to go. And they've yep. got a few preferred architects that they had used. Yep. So they know the plan. Here's the shell. Here's our space. They lay it out based on how the equipment needs to be and, and the flow of the restaurant. They design it for you, uh, the decor. I'm not a creative person. <laughs> like white walls and you know, carpets, what I need. But in the restaurant, they've got that. It's just kind of a plug and play. Yep. So it makes it really convenient. And then we send out a proposal for bids from contractors. And that's really where we step in. It's on us. They have some guidelines, but it's on us to, here's the plans, interview some contractors and get those bids. Uh, but they, same thing, they hold your hand through it and, and are really helpful in what to ask, what to look for. So we leaned really heavily on them in that process. I would imagine in the first one, you probably weren't going back and forth them. You trusted that their plan was going to be great. But was there would there have even been an opportunity to be like, I don't really like this layout. I like this. Or like, no, that's that's what you're going to get. Absolutely. There was an opportunity that we could have done that. Yeah. And in hindsight, I think we would have changed a few things. Part yeah. of it, the brand is was learning what worked. Yeah. And so they were in the process of changing things. Yeah. Not knowing much about the franchise world, Meggie and I thought, in a franchise, you just sign your name on that contract and they do everything. And yeah. what we had to learn is that we are our own business and right. this is our store. And so if we don't like it, we can ask. And it's a it's a two-way relationship there. Yep. And they don't see everything that we see. Yep. They're not in the stores running it every day either. And so some of the things that I've found now, so I go back and it is a collaborative process. Here's what works well. Here's the things that I like in my store. The owner down in Houston, he likes things differently. So the basic structure is there, yeah. but they they have some leeway in, in moving around to make it fit what works for your store, your design, your business. So it, from the day you signed the lease to the day you opened, how long did that take? That's pretty quick. The build out for our stores, eight to 10 weeks. Okay. So once the lease was signed, our, our shell was already built. So you can get it pretty quick. And in two and a half, three months, you could get the doors open. 
Okay, so con- now design and construction's underway. I haven't asked what was your job going to be and what was Maggie's job going to be? <laughs> or at the time, it was like, we're just going to show up and do whatever. Yeah, great question. And we just thought we we're both going to dive in head first and figure it out. We did think we would gravitate towards certain parts of the restaurant and parts of the business. Yeah. And in a couple instances, that was the case. And then others, it was completely separate. Yep. So I certainly handled the the dealing with the contractor, getting in there, Maggie's marketing background. She was beating the streets, guerrilla marketing. And we really believed in that face-to-face, try the product, yep. talk to people about it. And so she got out there and did that while I nurtured the construction process along. Uh, but once the doors opened, it's funny, that's where the the flip occurred. Yeah, I thought I'd be the operations guy. I thought I'd be in there day-to-day running things. And the employees were more afraid of her than they were of me. <laughs> she walks in, they tighten up, they, they pull their pants up, you know, they're in business. And for me, they're like, ah, who are you? <laughs> so it's just really funny how she just had that operations mind and could run that store better than anybody I've seen. I love it. And yeah, so it's great. Okay, so do they, and they, I'm assuming they provide you kind of training manuals for operating and they give you kind of their best practices. And then at what, do they help you hire? Like, when did you start prepping to hire knowing you were going to be opening? Yeah, they give some guidelines. So they do have, there's a, a training program that all owners, managers go through. And that's common for most franchises. Yeah. So we did it in Auburn at the headquarters and that you learn some ins and outs from the classroom, the back back office side, but then they have a test kitchen. You're actually in there learning how to make the chicken and how to prep the sides and make the pimento cheese. And so you do all of that as well. So you, you learn it there and then they give you some manuals, but there's nothing like real world experience on that. So we actually did some time in a, a restaurant that was already open just to get some hands-on experience, which was helpful. Yeah. Um, and then there's a great guideline and that's the benefit of the franchise system. They've gone through it. Here's your timeline. Here's when to start hiring people. Here's here's what to look for when you're looking for management structure. So you follow that. And But even that, we found that Every situation is different. And in hindsight, we didn't think about that. Megan and I were going to run that thing. We didn't necessarily need to hire a proven experienced general manager because what we ran into, what ended up happening is there was two heads on that snake. Yeah. And we were micromanaging because we thought we were managers and they weren't sure why they were hired. And it, it was difficult in the beginning to figure that part out. So that's some of the lessons that they can't necessarily give you. But the rest of it is... Here's, here's kind of when you're hiring for personality for cashier, but for prep, you need somebody that's steady, reliable, that likes to follow the rules. And yep. so how you kind of look for those, those characteristics when you're hiring, but it's a big deal. We hire a lot of people in the beginning. Yep. You know, you're going to have some people that don't show up. You know, you're going to turn some people out and then that sales volume will stabilize a little bit. And so you'll have a few people you'll have to cut, but uh, it's a big number in the beginning. How many people did you have to hire for to get like day one when it opened? How many people had you hired at that point? We had somewhere between 40 or 50 people on payroll at the very beginning. And But they're obviously not all there. They're coming in That's shifts. Right. So what's the breakdown of that 40, 50 people? We've got uh, our, our morning crew that because we make all the product in-house, okay. chicken salad chicken. So we've got our prep crew and they're cranking out a couple hundred pounds of chicken every day, okay. mixing it. So that's three to four people that you have just in the back prepping everything. Okay. And then in the middle where all the food gets put together, you've got 
five to six people when those when the line's out the door to get food out, our target is two minute ticket times. And so in order to accomplish that, you've got two sandwich lines running nonstop and it takes about three people per line. And then up front, all your cashiers, four registers, plus runners, plus somebody just working in the dining room. And so when you start the day, you'll have 10 to 12 people uh, on average, sometimes on your peak days, you'll, yeah. you'll run a few more. And you guys got to do probably some uh, some like test training days before grand opening. Yes. So we do a friends and family day, which is great. It gives the team there's a few days of just training and then two days of of practice for the team where we invite their friends and their family and they come in, we give out free meals and they get to run through a dry experience of what that looks like. It's a very controlled flow, which is good. Uh, once again, the problem is with the grand opening day, Chicken South Street does a great job. Yeah. We're going to make a splash and nobody's ready for that crowd. Yeah, And it is chaos. And when we came to a new market, nobody knew really about Chicken South Street. They didn't know how to order. So it's just the whole process. It just goes wheels off. Uh, it's, it gets crazy. I thought it might be fun just to, for a couple of minutes, just riff on that grand opening day, you've never run a restaurant. You're kind of swimming in the deep end without floaties. You've, you've learned what you've learned. So you probably don't sleep the night before you wake up. What is that day? Like how'd that day play out? It was one of those <laughs> things where I've since taken time to reflect on it. The year afterwards, I blocked it out. <laughs> I didn't want to think through it. We just wanted one person in line. Yep. That's all we thought. If there's one person in line and the founder story is the same thing when they talked about opening their very first restaurant, if there was one customer that came through and so Megan and I, you spend a year preparing for this. And so all the time, the energy, the money that goes into it and one person is there and we had three people spend the night because we give away free chicken salad for a year and they showed up that night. And it was just this huge relief. Okay, we at least have three people tomorrow. Uh, but when we got there that morning, there was a line already around the building. Wow. And it was just huge relief that we now have that. So now it goes into time to get into action. And your brain almost doesn't have time to process. Yeah. And the rest of it's really a blur. Yep. The Chamber of Commerce is there, ribbon cutting. You open the doors, guests start flowing in, and immediately the fires start coming. Yeah. And the corporate team is there to help, and they do a great job. The trainers, they hold your hand. Uh, but everybody's looking to you when there's questions, when there's problems. Yeah. And so it's just bouncing nonstop, and you literally do not stop moving until the doors lock at 8. The team cleans at 9, and then you decompress for an hour. It was just a... A completely, Maggie had done a lot of openings as part of her time on the marketing team. Yeah. But when you're the one responsible, it's a very different dynamic, uh, one that we weren't ready for. Was there, uh, is there one like little story from that day that you'll never forget? <laughs> from that, so I'll share two. Okay. One from that day, because that day, like I said, it's just our minds were very first opening, minds are in a different place. And we had a good friend that Maggie went to TCU with. He came with his wife to eat lunch. And we, I was in the back having to help with something. And, and our manager comes up and said, John, somebody just found a glove in their food. And if you've ever seen a glove, like, there's no way. And they're like, he is not happy. And I was like, maybe it's just part of the chicken. John, he said it's a glove. You need to get out there. And my brain is going a thousand miles a minute, like day one. I mean, this is, can't be happening. And then the manager kind of looks at me and gives me a little smirk. And I was like, 
okay, there's got to be something behind this. And we go out and it's it's this guy that Maggie knows. And I've never told him that story. Yeah. That about ruined me that day. <laughs> <laughs> about took me out because I was like, there is no way. Yep. Uh, he just wanted to come see us. So it's great to see him. So that was like the day one, the whole like, what's, what's actual reality versus like, that's just not, maybe it's possible, but. And then after that, we had a store in Burleson and we opened that one and it was a huge opening. Exceeded our expectations by 40 to 50%, wow. which is great, but product becomes an issue at that point. Yep. And sales were uh, just really high. And so our food distributor, I called him and like, I need more product. And so the closest I can get you is Plano, whatever. I'll drive up there, load my truck up, 4 a.m., go to bed. It's after the, the first night we'd open, go to bed. I get a call from midnight, our alarm company, one of my stores powers out. I got to go take care of it. So get in my truck at midnight, drive up to that store, load all the product in my truck, take it to one of our other stores to put it in their cooler, Yeah. sleep on a bench in the restaurant for an hour, and then drive to Plano to pick up product so that I could drive it back down to Burleson, yep. unload it in the cooler. As I'm finishing unloading, they call, hey, power's back on, so I got to go drive back to Hearst to get our product, move it back to Alliance. <laughs> All in the span of time and just thought, this is not supposed to happen, uh, but you got to do it to get the sales. And so then the end of that story was I walk in, I was about ready to pass out and get home, take a nap. And I'm laying there, I wake up after an hour and Maggie's running in the door as I'm walking out. And there's water leaking from the roof. Oh my God. We are water heaters in the attic and it sprung water. I was like, it was one of those, this day can't get any worse. And yeah. you say it three times. <laughs> like, I'm not going to say that anymore because it can't absolutely get worse. Oh, I love it. Yeah. All right. So at a store, you mentioned like two to 300 pounds of chicken. What does that look like? Is it, does that come in form of breasts? Is it already chopped up? How much is 200, two, two or 300 pounds? Yeah. So we get 40 pound cases of chicken tenders, okay. raw chicken tenders. Okay. And, and we stack them in these pans and we cook them. I never know how much of that is proprietary information, yeah. uh, but we cook in house and the way we stack the pans, our steamers cook 60 pounds at a time. Okay. And so once it's cooked, you pull it out um, and, you, and you shred it to make it. But that's when you're doing that many, that's a lot of, of steamer. It takes 30 minutes to cook. And it's so it's just this whole process of stacking chicken after it's cooked, mixing it together and putting it up. The process has gotten a little bit easier since when we first started. Yeah. Uh, the brand has kind of found better equipment and things that have helped. But that's a lot of chicken to, to stack in one day. So when you get, uh, you had a three-store territory, at what point did you have to start thinking about store two? And before you answer that, at what point did you know store one's going to make it? Like, obviously, grand openings, first couple months, a lot of traffic. But when as a restaurant owner, you're like, all right, we've got a market. This is going to work. For us, it was pretty quick. Yeah. And we'd heard that from a lot of owners. Okay. Chicken Salsic brand cash flow positive from day one. Yep. And and that was a really encouraging thing. I mean, for us in the new market, we weren't sure, but it goes back to being naive. We think that, okay, if this works for everybody else, it's going to work for us. Yep. And we'll work through it. And so first day with the sales that we had, it was encouraging. And then after that first month, for sure, we just had kept a pretty consistent pace of sales. And we know, okay, this is going to be good. How good it was going to be, not really sure, but at yeah. least we know we'll make some money. Yeah. So we were able to use that. And with the real estate world, I mean, you know some of this too, like real estate, 
never stops and you always have to be looking. So mm -hmm. we had a schedule. We knew approximately when we needed to open that second store. How long was that? About a year. Okay. And then the third store they wanted open a little under a year, 10 months or so. Okay. Chicken Salad Chick was great to work with. They also want you to be successful. Right. If you're actively looking, they don't want you to settle for a site just to get open. It's not good for them. It's not good for you. Yep. So even from the very beginning, before we opened the first one, we had feelers out looking for number two. Okay. Uh, the challenge was we were unknown as a brand. Me and Maggie were unknown as operators. And, and so landlords and developers just really weren't interested in talking to us. Yeah. So it took us a while to find that second location. Uh, we opened it in November of 2017. So it was okay. about a year and a half almost from when we opened the first one. It was new construction. So there was we'd had a lease signed before, but there was just this big gap to find the right space for what we needed in the right market. But then that's the tipping point for us and for the brand. You just stick it out long enough. People see that you're successful. And that's the benefit of finding really good sites in the beginning. Yep. And we believed in that. Pay to get the best site. Run it as good as you can. And that's why we lived in there that first year. And then the story starts to tell itself. So then it just kind of takes off and you start getting the phone calls instead of being the one calling. Are there any tricks or things like looking back that if somebody is starting for the first time that they can use to get landlords to pay attention to them? Yes. Uh, sometimes <laughs> it works. Sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. And a, I won't share names, but one of the things our brand is really, really great for shopping centers because we're female centric. Yeah. The women's making the shopping decisions. And so we're pretty marketable in that sense. Yeah. Um, so being able to, to give people demographic mix, 70% of our guests are female. That normally gets your foot in the door. And then from there, we don't have fryers. We don't have some of the traditional restaurant nuisances that people like to complain about. And so yeah. we're a clean concept. That helps our hours of operation. But it goes back for us. The product is so good if somebody tries it they typically understand. And so one of the things that corporate used to recommend was to take some of the product, use it for marketing, but take it to some of these landlords, let them know what it's like. So we paid, <laughs> this was before we, we found our first site, we paid to overnight product from Auburn so that we could give it to a landlord for this site that we really wanted. Yeah. And we had no money at this point. And we were, <laughs> but we paid three hundred and fifty bucks to overnight this two pounds of chicken, most expensive chicken salad <laughs> I've ever had. And we take it to the landlord with all of our marketing materials. We'd already looked at the site, and they never called us back. They never acknowledged that they received it. They never. And in hindsight, it was the best thing to happen because that site has not performed near as well as anybody expected it to. Yep. And it forced us to go to Alliance where our first location was, which ended up being great. But really get talking up the brand in terms of demographic mix and the product. And don't be afraid to get out there and do it. Yep. It's just, there's nothing better than face-to-face. -face. And one more thing on build out. When you're, so you have it designed, do you order like equipment and all the chicken salad chick decorations from preferred vendors that they've already selected? So it's just automatic? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And that's that's the great part, too, about the franchise models that they already it's a package and you just kind of say, here's my layout and just click submit. 
And how does the kind of relationship work with them? Do you pay a fee the day you get the territory? And then is it a recurring kind of percentage of sales from thereafter? Or how does it how does it work? Uh, how does the franchisor make money? Yeah, so there is a, an upfront franchise fee yeah. that you pay. And, and with most brands, chicken salad chicks the same way. There's your first store, you pay the full amount. And then if you sign an agreement, there's a, a portion of that that you pay to lock in those rights. Yep. And then as you open those stores, you pay that remaining bid off. And then there's an ongoing royalty fee that you pay okay. as part of your sales. And then uh, there's also a marketing fee that's paid. And that helps national marketing across the brand. So it's a pretty standard model. And for us, it's pretty consistent with what industry average is. Yeah. Um, what do they do for you or what resources do they provide to you? Now you're seasoned and experienced, but what do they have like a library of content or what do they do during the year that, or do they do anything? Yeah. And this is really where, and we've learned if I've explored other franchises, the answer to that varies pretty significantly by the brand. Okay. Uh, Chicken Salzik does a fantastic job providing that support. Uh, they recognize the franchisees are how they make money. Right. And supporting us is important for them and their success too. So there is there's an online portal that does all of our training and has resources for recipes. If we forget them, it has resources for marketing, intranet sites to connect with corporate teams if you need somebody in the real estate department or in the accounting department. Uh, so a lot of that, there's just a portal you can go to and they're very open with call us if you need us. And yeah. so for us, it helped that Maggie was there and had a lot of contacts. But I'll say, I mean, talking to other franchisees in the brand, they they all answer their phones when you call yeah. and they want to help support you there. And so the other thing they do that's very common is provide a, a business consultant for the brand. Cool. And what he does or she does is help you determine what your goals are for your business. How do you meet that? They help to make sure that you're doing things the right way. You're following standards, extra set of eyes. But me as a five-store owner now working on six, seven, eight is very different than somebody who just wants one store right. or two stores. And so those business consultants can help you analyze where you are, where you need to be. How can I go from one to two to three to four? Or how can I just sit at my one and make it the best possible store that I can? Yep. Do you meet with other franchisees from around the country like once a year or share war stories or? We do. So there's an annual conference that we get to go to. Yeah. They do a great job with that. And then. Do they feed you chicken salad? <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. One year they did. And people, they haven't done it since. I think people got pretty mad about that. Uh, yeah, that was just, what are we doing? Um but so there's that's a great way to meet. And, yeah. and because the brand is growing so much, there's every year a new franchise is added. Cool. But the owners in this brand are really open. I've heard this from other multi-units that have different brands and concepts. And they say, this brand, everybody's so open and they share. And so for Maggie and I, when we open, a lot of these owners, like they gave us all their financials. They told us all about their experiences. And so even now, as I share a lot of that with prospective franchisees, I went down and toured the Houston market recently. The operator down there is just a great guy who's involved with a few brands. And he said, come on. And so he gave us half a day with him and a day with his area manager. Just said, like, let's look at what we do and how can we get better and support each other in that. Yep. It was very collaborative. And those ideas of sharing pictures, here's what I did that helps. Yep. That, that's been really helpful for us as we came from a background without restaurants. We oh, need yeah. people that know what they're doing to for sure. give us some tips. Before we get into um, to life as a five-store operator and growing, I, I wanted to just touch real quick on 
What does Yelp reviews and Google reviews mean to you? And have you built thick skin? <laughs> because when I think, when I say this all the time, like my heart goes out to customer facing businesses that are prone to Yelp and Google yeah. reviews. Yeah. What does that mean to you? It's interesting. There's a lot of theories on Yelp. I won't go into those, uh, their business model. Um, we have advertised with them in the past and we aren't currently advertising. I mean, I use it to look at pictures maybe. Google is helpful. Uh, the way I look at it, it, the problem is we could educate consumers on how to use that or how to give a review. I think it'd be helpful. Yeah. You say, I hate this place. It's terrible. I'm never going back. Tells me nothing. Yeah. Why did you hate it? Or people saying their chicken salad is nasty. Well, they don't say, I like mine. Chunky, yours is shredded. Right. That That's a personal preference. And we don't get that. And so it's tough because we all do look at the scores. Yep. Oh, you're a four star, not a four and a half star. What does that mean? So you have to take it with a grain of salt. It's helpful. And so we believe in it. I encourage my managers to be aware of that yeah. and, and to understand what that means when people see that score. Yeah. And so how we go about uh, engaging guests on that front to know and talking about it. Hey, your your review matters. Yep. And and so if you've had a great experience, please go tell everybody how great it's been. And how much does it matter? Do they really like having a five-star review on Yelp or Google review, whatever it is, like that is a big deal still today? It still is. I think it's lost a little bit of its uh, power yeah. over the years as people have learned a little bit more about, yeah. about what it means and, and having preferences. But it's still... I'd say like being a four, four and a half star or a 4.7, that difference to me is not that significant. Yeah. Matters, but pretty marginal. Now, once you go four and below, I think that's where you start to see that difference. Yeah. So back to the question too about thick skin, man, I've got such soft skin when it comes to that stuff. That is the one thing I told my wife, if you'd only do one thing for this business for the rest of our lives, I, I will do everything else. You respond to all the reviews. <laughs> And so she's so great at it. And she did it when she was at the corporate office, but it just doesn't phase her. Yep. I take it so personally. Yep. And I know it's not, but I told her I did not want to see a single one of those. I know. And so she does it. She takes care of it. Well, most people go to review when it's been a bad experience, not That's a right. good experience. Um, right. And I've always thought, and maybe they're they're doing this now, but I always felt like you as the owner had a, should have a chance to rebuttal or make it go away or make it right. But for a long time, and if we don't have to talk about Yelp, you can go watch yeah. the South Park episode on them. Uh, but it was very much like uh, you couldn't get rid of them. And it's not like you had a chance to rate the customer or anything like that. Is, has anything changed there or just they put it up and it sticks? It's there and it sticks. And that's one of the, you know, there's some restaurateurs and, uh, that have gone the approach of fighting back a little bit and calling guests out that are being negative or unacceptable in their reviews within a franchise model, there's a different standard. Yeah. And and so that's for us where some of it, you just have to just let it go. Yeah. Um, there is a standard that we have to uphold in our response and an expectation from the corporate group. But it's funny, Megan, and I've talked a lot about, well, are there things that we can do right now? Sales are at are all-time highs for us. Wow. Staffing, all-time lows. Yep. And so people are coming. They've got money in their pocket. They're ready to go out to eat. They've been cooped up. They don't understand that I'm running with a third of the people that I need to run that store efficiently. Wow. And so it will take a little bit longer to get your food. And they're so angry about it. And so those are the moments that I want to go back and just say, look, come put a hairnet on, put some gloves on, and, and help us out. 
So we've talked about ways to preemptively get in front of that. Highlight the team members. I've got this great team member that is working their tail off and they are doing everything they can to hold it together. Please give them some grace. Yeah. Um, those kind of things to make it personal. Well, John won't ask, but I'll, I'll make it an ask. If you're listening to this and you've been to Chicken Salad Chicken for, in Tarrant County and you like it, go leave them a five-star review. Yes. We yes, love those. Please. Okay. So now let's get into, so you, you originally got three. So maybe just real quick, you got to three and then you just went back to corporate and said, can we expand the territory? From day one, I started asking for more. Yeah. And, and part of it, I really didn't have a path. I still, if people ask me all the time, what, where are you going? What's your plan? I don't know. Um, I'm a bit of an opportunist yep. and and I just felt like the first one went well. And so I'm going to start asking for more. Yep. And so some of the, the <laughs> advice, same thing, like when the owner told us, I'm not going to give you 10. Yeah. Uh, the new group that bought the brand, the, the CEO's great guy, Scott Devinney, And he said, well, let's get a few open first, see how it goes, how you like it. And yeah. then we'll talk about it. So they knew I was interested. I think that's important advocating for yourself. I'm interested. Yep. Know that I'm here. Let me prove myself. And so it was kind of a slow roll from that point. And the opportunity came up to buy an additional territory for a single store early on. So I took that on um, and then just kept the conversation going and brought in a, a, an individual, one of the family friends that's kind of a mentor to us and brought him into the conversation, which helped give us a little credibility too, to go back and say, we want to sign an expanded. So we was able to double our store count. So it went from three to four to eight and... Same thing. I'm still, I emailed her today, my the franchise sales director, and just said, hey, what's out there? And, and, yeah. and, uh, are all of those current stores in Tarrant? Are you, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Same kind of surrounding community. So okay. I'm getting ready to sign at least, this is, I guess it's not secret, but Midlothian is uh, the okay. next market that we're coming to. Awesome. And so, but looking at a few other markets in Parker County and Ellis County and Johnson County, uh, but all in the area. And part of that's chicken salad chicks model. They prefer you to be local to your market. Right. Um, some brands don't really care. You can live wherever, operate them. But part of the core strategy for Chicken Salad Chick is to be present where you are, part of the community. People know you by face. Yeah. They see you. It's, it's your community. And I think it lends to the success, certainly that the brand has had, but for us as well. So I'm imagining as you're getting to five stores and beyond, and you had mentioned the business consultant, obviously your role's changing. Do they start saying, okay, these are the, like the corporate staff you need to start hiring that don't maybe aren't in the stores, but are kind of running the operation or what does that look like? Yeah, that's been a big struggle, I guess, for me to learn. I don't have that history. And so they're somewhat helpful when it comes to thinking through what that looks like. But what I found is that's really where the other owners come into play. Okay. Other people in the industry call these groups. What do you need? What works for you? When did you hire this person? And then some of it goes back to what's important to you. So for me, one of the first above store staff that I hired was a trainer. Okay, I felt that if we talk about the importance of doing things the right way, following the standards, I need somebody that can help oversee that because I'm not in the store every day. Yep. Can't be. I'm looking for new sites. I'm doing these other things. And so having somebody that made sure that we were consistently doing it the right way was a good use of our resources. Yep. I'm the only franchisee of my size that I know about in the brand that does that. A lot of people hire the marketing or the catering, which is important. Yep. But if you don't take care of your four walls and doing things the right way, the rest just goes away. So you have a trainer. Do you have anybody else that's not a basically at the store, but at the higher level? 
Yeah. So I also have an area manager. Okay. And so she's really responsible for making sure that the managers in the store is supported, taking a lot of that day-to-day off my plate. Yep. So we hired her after the second store, just knowing that we were getting ready for that runway. And that was some good advice that I got to. I tend to take a lot of things on and try and do too much, be the super manager or whatever it might be. And the advice was hire now, not after you think you need them, yep. hire before you need them. And that was really great advice. And it helped free me up to, to expand fast. And that's really where we went from two to five in a matter of six months. Yep. And we went from one to two in a year and a half. Yeah. Uh, so that, that growth at the end was attributed a lot to having the right people in place to let me focus that time. So how many stores will you open up in the next 24 months? I've got two that I'll open this year and then uh, one more store in my current agreement with corporate. So the goal is to have it open uh, by the end of 24 months, unless they'll listen to this and, and sell me those extra couple stores that I'd like to open up. This is this is, this is is one of the pieces that you'll use to get those extra stores. Um, all right, let's, let's just shift a little bit. So you've made comments like I'm uh, all-time high sales, but all-time low hiring. We are coming out of a, um, a global pandemic. The restaurant industry has been kind of at the center of it. Let's just talk about March 15th of 2020 to today. March 18th of 2020 is when I opened my fifth store. Wow. And that was right as everything was shutting down. Yep. And it was brutal for that location in particular. Yep. Um, I'd opened one in January, but yeah, so from... We go do all this prep work to get a store open only to have everything completely change in a matter of, of days. And so it was an immediate shift to figuring out what's next. Yep. We found that this is the benefit of a franchise model for us. There's a whole team of marketing people and operations individuals and HR people that were helping pump resources daily. Here's here's webinars to watch regarding hiring. Here are uh, some marketing things to help boost some sales. One of the biggest marketing things that the team came up with was these offsite deliveries. We'd go with neighborhoods, which is common now, you know, but we would do these massive drops. Uh, Decatur was a market. I don't have a store big presence. So we would go to Decatur once a month and take orders online and drop and it would add a thousand, two thousand dollars to our sales that day. Wow. Um, and a lot of that just came from the franchisor helping. And for us, it's I had to learn too. I mean, at the end of the day, I have to make decisions for my business within the framework of where we are. Yeah. And so how do I respond to the environment? to support the team that I have. And a lot of people furloughed and our goal is to not have to do that. So within that too, you have help just thinking through those things. Yep. Um, but every day, it was the least amount of physical work I had done in the past five years, but the most amount of critical thinking I had done in those five years. It was I was more exhausted at the end of those days than I was the first year of working. I can't imagine. So was there ever a point like, because early on it was, hey, this might just be a little bit, we'll be open by May, but the goalposts just kept getting moved. Then it was, you can't sit in restaurants. Like, yeah. did you in the last year, was there a point where you're like, I think we have what we have currently under control and a new system's built and we're just going to operate on this until further notice? It took a couple months and part of it too, every every area is different. I'm grateful to be in a state like Texas that that is very pro-business and looks at the information and wants to support our success too. Yep. Um, talked to a lot of owners and other, other areas that were just completely left in the dark, had to shut down completely. So having that 
if if we could keep the doors open, yep. I felt like we could we could stay alive. It was a little demoralizing at times. Everybody kept saying, well, we'll get through this month, the next month. And there's this great quote that's talked about in the Good to Great book, Jim Collins. And it's about the POW survivors at camp. And they kept saying, well, the story is the one guy kept saying, well, we're just going to, we're going to get out of here by Thanksgiving. We're going to get out of here by Christmas. And they ultimately just died because they just, they lost hope. Yep. And, and the ones that survived said, I don't know when we're going to get out of here, but we're going to get out of here. Yep. And so for me, it was a lot of that mentality. If I had to say, I don't know when this will end, yep. but we're going to get through this. Yep. And, and my job shifted from trying to help operations in the store to just rallying the troops, keeping morale up, thanking people for coming to work. We're going to get through it. I don't know how, nobody yep. knows how, but we're going to get through it and just keep showing up, doing the same thing. And so once we got through the first part of the summer, though, I felt like we were going to be okay. We negotiated rent uh, deferrals with our landlords. Yep. So that really helped. Um, our team knew the importance of working hard to control the costs and, and keep labor in line. And so we were able to get those variable costs under control. Yep. And then our product was carry out already. We had a lot of that. And so we were able to just set open the door. You don't have to come in. We'll just bring you the product. And once again, the benefit of the franchise system, I have a lot of friends in independent restaurants that they're not used to takeout packaging. How do I source it? Corporate had a contract for that. So when, when supply chain got tight contractually, they were the first to get it. So we benefited from that. Yep. Uh, and it kept the flow that we needed to keep things going and still touch and go at times. But knowing that we had that in place, and the support from the franchisor on sharing ideas was was the support we needed to get it. How how did you staff a restaurant differently? Obviously, there was probably lots of you know Uber Eats and DoorDash people coming, people coming to pick up. And obviously, when you're ordering something, you don't really care what store it comes from. You just care that it's delivered. Did you, was it were they staffed differently? They were. Since our dining rooms were shut down for the most part, we didn't need the same amount of front of house staff making sure that things were. Uh, tables were bust as much and clean. I mean, we cleaning was a big part of the perception as well and, and just the reality. And so making sure somebody was always cleaning. But we did have to, the online sales really helped us and a lot of restaurants make it through it. So that changed the dynamic too. Now you've got somebody who's watching the online sales come in. You've got somebody manning the phone because curbside. So somebody's calling. So that takes somebody on the phone and somebody running. So it's repurposing people. Yeah. I mean, reduce staff for sure to keep up with sales volume, but you find the ways that I want to keep you employed and we're going to start doing curbside. So you're going to be my runner. And they take that and, you know, adapt to the different role and and go with it. So let's talk about labor. That's a big issue. Yeah. Um, why are you having trouble hiring? Is it because unemployment keeps coming and people would rather stay unemployed or they're scared to get back in the restaurant industry? What is it? It's a lot of... A lot of the up above, mm-hmm. um, the CEO from Chicken Salad Chick was on CNBC recently talking about those challenges. And uh, what's what's interesting is that it's not just here. It's not just in the Southeast. It's everywhere. Um, I think a lot of it is the unemployment, the benefits that are out there. Uh, frees people up just to stay home and not have to come in. There's yep. still some fear for what's coming. Uh, people are still afraid to get out a little bit and work in that environment. So there's, I think a lot of it contributes to the issue. There was a, a, a decline leading up to this as well. I mean, so we'd experienced some labor challenges even prior to COVID, certainly not to this extent. 
Um, but the market's just shifting and, yeah. and you have these big brands that are coming in and Amazon's that are paying $15 an hour, Walmart that's going up to $15 an hour, whatever it is. And then states and cities that are changing their local wages. And so you have to get a little more creative. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just kind of like the restaurants that some of the restaurants that failed during COVID, that was probably because they were already going out. I think labor was already on the slide and this just blew it wide open. So everybody's scrambling to go back and figure out, okay, how can I attract and retain a good workforce? And if anybody has an answer that's listening, please call me and let me know what that answer is. Uh, But for right now, it's just take care of the core that you have and and get creative. Have you figured through this, um, and maybe this will come from corporate, but have you figured like maybe we can run stores now a little leaner than we once thought? A little bit. Corporate has talked about that. And and Chicken Salad Chick, the brand is very personable. Uh, They talk a lot about our product is great, but people come back for that experience. And so their model, they're pretty set on, on, we're not going to get rid of people. We're not going to go to these kiosk computers where you order for yourself because you lose that experience. And we're a unique restaurant in that we're, we're fast casual. You order the counter, sit down. But we have carpet in our dining room. The decor feels like you're in somebody's home. And so people sit. We don't turn tables as fast. And so we want a lot of that engagement, checking in. How's your meal? How are things? And so it's a different level of service. And, and I think in the long run, that's what people are going to look for. Yeah, Convenience is huge. Yeah, All the online ordering, people want that. But then also there's that rest of that population that just wants to sit and feel that connection again. Yeah. So I think it, for us, it can be a... a a benefit on the yeah. back end of this when people do get out somewhere they can go. But there's obviously some efficiencies that corporate has looked at. How can we do things leaner? How can we make our prep process better so that we don't have to run as many people or as many hours? Uh, but they're pretty committed to sticking with the model we have. It, it's done well and we'll just have to compete with everybody else. So maybe everybody that's replacing their cashiers with computers, the cashiers can come work for us. <laughs> so obviously, even before COVID, everybody wants a clean restaurant. You talk to a lot of restaurateurs, they're cleaning above and beyond like they've never done. That's a new cost into the business. Maybe two questions are, are there certain things that are just going to stay even when we're fully out of this? And are there any regulations that are going to make you clean more or do things that you didn't have to do before? Uh, I don't think there's going to be new regulations for us. Uh, Our brand, and, and certainly for me as an operator, cleanliness has always been at the top of our list. Yeah. So... How we think about cleaning maybe changes a little bit, but our standard was always to wipe the tables down, wipe high touch areas down, to use the sanitized wipes to clean that up. Some of what came out of COVID, I think, was the unknown of how can I get sick? What can I, what makes me sick? So everybody was these, these expensive, like go blast your restaurant with these fogger machines. And it probably helped, but I think more than anything, we see that's just, it gives me peace of mind. Um, so we always had that cleaning in place. It just maybe became a little more frequent. So you're going to see it a lot more every 30 minutes. We're cleaning door handles. We're cleaning table chairs, all that stuff, just the high touch areas. But the standard, I think, will remain the same. And man, you said you opened a restaurant on March 18th. <laughs> I just want to come give you a hug. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> did you, was there some like from corporate, were you, because I sit in the camp and I'm pretty in the know, but I will tell you like on March 10th, 11th, 12th, 
this was not on my radar close. Were you getting any signals maybe from other parts of the country or from corporate that something was coming or did it kind of surprise you? It, it surprised us for sure. Yeah. And I think it really surprised, I mean, even our corporate office, but I would say most in our segment, yep. um, especially us that are operating in states like Texas or the Southeast that are uh, pretty business friendly. We're not going to panic. We're not going to make these decisions to change everything overnight. And yeah. so everybody kind of heard, well, we'll be through this by the summer. There's no need to panic. So a lot of the message early on was pretty light-handed, I guess, in, in our approach, like don't really change anything. Yep. Um, and so it, and a lot of it was, hey, you're we're on different states. You're going to have to listen to your local communities and figure yeah. out what you have to do. And so for me, it was, it was talking to other restaurant individuals, other business owners, what they're seeing, what they're hearing, and then making some decisions for our market, for my stores that helped. So I changed and we went all takeout packaging before corporate mandated it. Yep. Just thought we needed to do that. Yep. Um, I mean, it changed, so it, <laughs> it was good that that happened, but some of that stuff nobody could anticipate. Yep. So once it started, the, the pandemic started getting into these summer months and, hey, we don't know when it's going to end, then that's when everybody shifted their thinking to, okay, we really need to go to the other side of this model really go aggressive in how we attack these problems as opposed to just thinking that they're going to eventually just go away and disappear. Yeah. One more question just on um, on labor, um, and it doesn't even necessarily relate to the current state of labor, but you had even made a comment when we first started. The restaurant industry is kind of notorious. There's turnover. People don't show up. You now have five stores. You've hired hundreds of people. What have you learned about how to kind of keep those folks top shape, performing, like, is there something that you do differently than others that give you a better chance of success with your labor? Uh, I, I ask myself that every day. Yeah. Uh, and I think that part of that is there is not one answer to that. And and it really is, it evolves and it changes. Uh, yeah. For us, a lot of it comes back to what we, our goal is to provide that culture. And Megan and I got into restaurants with the idea that we wanted to make a difference in lives and, and directly impact people. And we have the ability to do that, but people are inherently messy. Yeah. And and so it's been a lot harder than what we thought, but at the same time, caring for people never stops. And yeah. so our goal is to just care for people, care about them personally and say, you have to set a limit yeah. to that. You know, you can't have people that walk through that, but I, I, we give a lot more grace than most people do. And yeah. we hear about that and employees that have worked for us that have gone elsewhere or have come from other places that are used to being yelled at or used to this. Hey, it's okay. Yeah. yeah. Look, it's, it's just chicken salad. That's what I like to say. It's just chicken salad. Well, one quality that I know you have, cause we mentioned it before we started recording you were telling me a story about what you were doing. Was it earlier today or the other day? <laughs> you were back in the prep hall. Yeah, yeah. Earlier this week on Monday, just got the call. We had a couple of employees that couldn't show up. And so Monday morning, went up to one of our stores and started mixing some flavors and then cooked 120 pounds of chicken <laughs> salad by myself and stacked another 120 pounds for them to cook that night and uh, showed up the next morning and mixed some 100 pounds of flavors for them to have that day. And yeah, it That's never awesome. stopped lead by example. All right. So you're at five stores, you're growing to eight. You kind of have said the goal is to just keep asking for more and more. Um, is is the goal, if I said, what, what are you going to do over the next five years is try and keep expanding territory? Is there ever a thought, maybe get into another franchise or what are you thinking? Yeah. So both of those, I love the brand. I love chicken salad chicken. Yeah. I want to stick with it as long as they'll let me and yeah. do what we can. It, it's been 
it's how Maggie and I have set our lives now and yeah. kind of what's kicked us off. And so to remain involved with them uh, is part of that plan and that goal. Yeah. Um, as I've been in the franchise space a little bit longer, I've, I've realized that it's also pretty small and you start to talk to other people. And so we started exploring other brands and, and honestly, we've put in the blood, the sweat, the tears. And I feel like to walk away from it right now would be stupid. Oh yeah. And we're going to take what we've learned and we're going to apply it to the next challenge and use that as a propellant for growth yep. um, to find brands that align with those same values that we do that fit what we're looking for and and expand that way. And same thing, we were given a huge opportunity to do this from the founders who took a chance, from our friends and family that took a chance. And I see our mission now as a way to give other people an opportunity. And so how can we do that? Opening more stores, yep. creating more jobs, giving somebody the ability to move up in life to say, hey, I never thought I could be a manager. Yeah. I have a manager now. She's one of my best managers, been with me forever. And she says that, I never thought I could I could be a, a general manager of a store and yeah. do this. And so those kind of things are, are the inspiration for us to find ways to do more of that. Yeah. Well, then on that note, um, you when you first got into franchising, you didn't know what the hell you were doing. You probably didn't even know mm-hmm. the questions to ask. You just knew you liked the chicken salad. But maybe let's spend a little bit of time on whether this was somebody that's maybe thinking about doing it for the first time, but really let's just go through your mindset. What are the questions that you're now asking about what you would need to see to get comfortable with? And what, what questions matter for you to maybe go, I would do this brand? The first one for me now, as I've explored a few other brands, is what is the executive leadership's goal for that brand? Yeah. That, that changes things dramatically. You've seen brands that go through this. Our focus is on opening as many stores as possible because we want to have an IPO and we want to blow it up. So then you just sign up any franchisee that has money. You take any site that has a vacancy sign. And then that's a detriment to the entire brand yep. because your stores and your market get those four star reviews, those three and a half star reviews. And people are like, I don't, I don't want to deal with this. Yep. They won't give you the chance. So knowing what the the goal is for that corporate team, what their strategy is, how they plan to grow, how they vet prospective franchisees is very important. Okay. I think how they they position themselves in the brand in terms of marketing and image is important too. Yep. Do they know who they are and are they adamant about sticking to that? The founder of Chicken Salad Chick Stacy used to talk about that. Why we're not going to start serving breakfast, why we're not going to do this thing. It's not who we are. Yep. And so when you start trying to get too creative, you lose your identity. And so brands that are just throwing stuff to see what sticks, that's concerning to me because they, they're lost. They're, so you want to know that they know who they are and how they communicate that to their consumers. Um, and then finally, I, I mean, it's just what your strategy and your goal is. So yeah. being with a brand now that we've built out a system and I've got the team behind me, I need a brand that will let me grow and scale to meet that appetite. Um, if your desire is just to be part of this small little community niche, then you want a brand that supports that model. Yep. And so knowing, I mean, for you personally, you have to ask yourself that question. And then that's, okay, what do you want? Chicken Salad Chick wants you to live where you are. Other brands say, go wherever you want. So that's an important thing to know that uh, when you hit your 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 cap. Uh, what are your options beyond that? Well, and and getting a little more granular as far as 
Like you now know consumer behavior, you know, things like what chicken costs. You mentioned like we didn't have a grease trap. That was great. Are there things that maybe this is more just your personal opinion? You're like, I'd never open up a hamburger shop or coffee. Everybody's in coffee. Are there certain things that are immediate no for you? And then certain things that are like, that's really attractive. Yes. And there's, you know, uh, there's this idea that uh, like chicken salad chick, I'm not, a, I'm a, I'm a not an ideal consumer. Yeah. I say I love packing my own lunch. I, <laughs> I just like, I don't like to go out to eat. So when I think about a brand for me, there has to be some kind of connection and yeah. I, not that I'm necessarily the most passionate person in the world. I would, I never really ordered chicken salad at restaurants until we went to chicken salad chick. Yeah. There's some people that order it. If it's on the menu, they get it. But for me, there needs to be a connection. And, and I think in a lot of businesses and industries, there needs to be some kind of connection, some passion that that gets you going and opening up. So when I look at other brands, there, there needs to be some moment of nostalgia. There needs to be something that, I mean, really, do I enjoy the food for sure? Not that I would eat it every day. Uh, but yeah, so like a pizza brand, that's not something that's on my radar. I love pizza. Yeah. Um, it just doesn't doesn't do it for me. There's no connection there. Hamburger brands, kind of the same thing. Yeah. So something that aligns with your values. And then really it is kind of the analysis of I, Megan and I did this so that we could have time with our family. Yeah. I don't want a brand that's open 24 hours. Yep. I don't want a brand that is open till 2 a.m. That's full service bar along with the food. That's just not how I want to spend my time. Yep. I get enough calls in the middle of the night. I don't want to add in a <laughs> 2 a.m. bar fight or whatever it might be. Yeah. So looking at that as well, it kind of fits with your personal values and how you want to spend your time. Yep. One more question on the on the business. Um, mobile delivery is here to stay. It's coming in hot. Things like ghost kitchens are arriving. So a, a few questions. One, and I had talked to Milo at Sal Salmon. Do you like working with the mobile delivery services? Do they eat all your margin? How do you, is it, do you treat it as marketing? How do you think about them as part of your business? Thinking about it as marketing is definitely key. When yeah. we started, for sure. We do it with catering delivery platforms as well. Um, my my thought on this is if you're going to order from your phone, you're going to order whatever's there. You're not specifically ordering chicken salad chick. You're ordering whatever's on your phone. And yeah. so it's an incremental sale for us that I wouldn't get otherwise. Yeah. It does take a, a pretty good chunk of your sale. Yeah. Um, we're priced where, you know, you're still going to make some money on it. But if I could make a little bit of money on it, that's yeah. better than not having it at all. Yeah. I think for us. And it it does at least get it into people's mouths and it gets them in the habit so that there will be times where they're just going to come find us. So it's, it's a little bit of both of those things. The benefit for us, going back to why a franchise system is great, having corporate negotiate that contract with Uber and with DoorDash saved us a ton. Yep. Um, before they had those in place, I'd partnered with Uber and they took a heck of a lot more than they took now. Yeah. And, and so having that is really helpful. Uh, but even then it's, People, and it's funny, schools, when I first started doing Uber, I delivered more stuff to local high schools than I did anywhere else. Oh, really? It was not a thing when I was in school that you could just order food to the school. Uh, but those kids, like, I wouldn't have sold to them. Yeah. And so it opened up some sales avenues that did not exist prior to these, these online. And you don't have to worry about, like, once your food goes into somebody's car and how they deliver the food to the customer, is that something you worry about? It is a challenge. Yeah. And that is one of the things that I think for a lot of 
of restaurants in particular, how do we get better? How to maybe change our packaging for chicken salad chick, our food travels really well. Yep. And so the packaging is there. I mean, we still have problems. Uh, and then it it is the guest perception. Whose fault is it? Yep. And so you have to trust the drivers. And so the companies have gotten a little bit better at that. If I have a certain uh, delivery partner that I just get really bad ratings from, I could turn them off. Or I can, uh, if there's certain drivers that I get reviews from that have used us, you know, we can say, I don't want this driver to come pick us up again. Yep. So there's a little protection for us, but that that's the challenge. You have to trust somebody else to take your product and deliver it and give that same experience that you would. And it's not going to be right every time. I think as consumers learn that system, though, they're going to get more comfortable with that. Yeah. And the expectation is going to slowly change. So on Ghost Kitchens, they're coming up because... Again, if I order chicken salad chick, I don't care if it comes from Camp Bowie, Montgomery Plaza. I just want it to arrive and be chicken salad chick. And then on the other side of that is, you know, a lot of these restaurants weren't designed to have 10 Grubhub uh, runners standing in the lobby waiting for food. So is that something on your radar? Do you think about it? I do. Yeah. So the ghost kitchen, probably not. Our, Our concepts are set up where we just really don't need it. We can, we've got the ability within our four walls yep. to make that happen. Okay. Um, our brand is designed for people to come sit anyways. And so it's kind of unnecessary for me to look at that. I don't think Chicken Saltrick would let us do it anyways, but it does change how I look at future sites. And there's some things, drive-thrus are huge, but to me, what's even more important than drive-thru is, is parking for quick takeout, 10 yep. minute parking and a separate entrance. So Montgomery Plaza, there's a separate entrance. I just want you to get in and out really fast with your food. So designing the layout where it's convenient for somebody to grab that meal, to fill up their drink and go out without having to go through everything else is because is, it's convenience. And so we set up the stores now in the dining room, my stores that are uh, have been around for a while. Where can we put, you know, everybody goes to putting these racks up so when the runners come in, their food's right there. When I go in and order my food online to pick up, that it's right there. So we're having to get a little creative with that. Um, but it's just kind of educating the guests on that flow. But certainly going forward, the design is, for me, is built around how can I get somebody in and out in as short amount of time as possible with as few steps as possible. And that it's, you know, it's the old like Chili's to go side door kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. They were ahead of their time. Yeah. Uh, that's what everybody wants now. Y'all aren't a caterer, but I'm sure you get large orders. So if I called you tomorrow and said, hey, I'm going to feed a a party of 200, how do you make that decision of where it's cooked? Do you have to do you have to say like, yeah, if you're going to make it that big, I need a week's notice. How do big orders make their way through the system? A lot of it's it's up to that store that gets the phone call. Okay, do they have the capacity to handle that? Got it. And, And our catering. It, it, I mean, our product, once again, is designed for catering. So we're in this segment where we need to really grow it. So if you need catering, give us a call. Yeah. Uh, but it, it's easy for us to assemble. It's different. It's not the same the, the same Jason sandwich where you're having to assemble this whole thing. Uh, we can build it pretty quick. Yep. And so on short notice, we can make it happen. But it's also the benefit of having that area manager who's coordinating. She's calling this store saying, I just got a phone call for 200 orders. How do I do it? Well, hey, let me call the other stores. Who's got additional product combined and make it happen? Um, it helps with really large orders to have 
24 hours. But if you give me 24 hours, I can pretty much make anything. We did an order down in Burleson a few months ago that was like 800 meals. Oh my gosh. Something for this huge event. Yeah. And that took a few days of of getting ready for it. Oh so my gosh. we appreciate those advanced finishes. <laughs> uh, so every day, what time does all the f- product arrive? And somebody's there to greet them, get everything in store. Yeah, so we get truck deliveries twice a week. Okay, and so that's on a schedule. Okay, but our our product is all we make everything in house. Everything okay. you eat outside, like the soups, we don't make those. But all of our side items, all of the chicken, it's all made in house. So part of the, I mean, this is where store layouts matter because you do have to store quite a bit of product. Yep. Um, you know, Chick-fil-A's, those guys get trucks every day because of their volumes. And yep. at some point you can't go too big, but checking the product in, making sure it's organized and put up, you know, those, a lot of those now we go to the key drop model so that it's already there when the team gets there. So efficiencies on that so that they can put things up where they want it. Uh, but staying on top of that, it's really important in our industry, controlling your inventory, controlling the waste. If it sits there and collects dust, it's costing me money. It's taking up valuable space in the store. Um, so the team, that the management team works really hard to track that. Corporate provides some great software resources for us to maintain that. Uh, and then they make calls as they go. And You said you have, you, you know, your your dream is to keep growing where you're growing is there private equity in the industry though? Like if you got to 10 stores, could you exit to private equity? Like, is that a reasonable outcome for you if you chose that path? It is. And it's pretty common. And I went to a franchise conference a couple of years ago and the the multi-unit franchise space has started to shift. You yeah. no longer really have, it's kind of like the disappearance of the middle class. You really, the, the 10 to 20 store operators are kind of disappearing. You've got these equity groups that are coming in and buying them out. Uh, and growing into these larger organizations. And so there's an appetite for that, for these stores that are up and running well. Um, and then, you know, on the other side, you've got the one, two, three stores yeah. uh, operation. So there's, and it's also to fuel growth uh, opportunities for me. There's a lot of groups that just focus on restaurants. Yep. And then you've got some that are diversified. And so there's money out there for this market, especially in good brands, growing brands that have proven themselves. And so as I look at that next phase, it's, you know, how do I analyze partly what I want out of this deal? Yeah. Um, if I'm going to put this time in, is it worth my time to go this route? But knowing that there's a backup if, when, and if it's time to get out. And in a private equity transaction, do you have to get corporate approval to even sell? Yes. Yeah. And so they have the first right of refusal and they would want to make sure there's some safeguards. Yeah. And, and that goes back to the difference in brands. And so if somebody's looking at franchising and, depending on what their plans are, if their goal is to build out a certain number of stores and sell them, they would want to make sure that that's something that can happen. Some franchisors really don't care. Yeah, They just want the stores open. Chicken Salad Chick, they're, like I said, they really believe in the community aspect of the brand. And so they would want to make sure that group coming in has plans to have somebody on the ground in that market filling your shoes or taking over and, and being the ambassador in that area. Yep. I keep saying last question, but then I keep coming up with one more. Yeah. I'm going to take take this one back to real estate a little bit. Retail from a real from a real estate perspective has been the hardest hit. Uh, that obviously opens up opportunities for folks that are tenants in retail. 
But you had also said you listened to the episode I did with Brady Wood, where he talks about the the landlord lease kind of being done, like the way that restaurants will partner mm-hmm. going forward. So question being, what are you seeing in the retail market right now? Is there a lot available or not? It's not changing. Really? Yeah. It's And part of that is, is we look for A locations. Yep. We want the best real estate that we can find. Yep. And that market is just as competitive as ever. Rates are not changing. Vacancy for those spaces is really not changing. Um, and, and what vacancies there, you've got national players, the Chipotle's that, that are going there, taking it at Starbucks or moving around stores and they're taking some of those spots. So the I think what the pandemic did was it, it, it may have softened the middle, but it made it even more competitive at the top. Yep. And so it's... To get into the good retail spots right now, uh, you have to be first in. Yeah. There, there's really no deals out yeah. there to be found, um, and so that's that's been the question every every person in real estate asks. Like, what do you see happening? And it's not changing. My attorney, he works on both tenant side and landlord side, writing leases. Lease languages aren't changing. Yep. Um, everybody's trying to get some kind of COVID language. You know, that's the common phrase now, and it's just to get that in. It's just not happening. The leverage is. Still with the landlords for the most part right now, yeah, because these national tenants are going to pay to take the good spots. And I think people realize too, it's worth the money to be in those prime locations. Yep, uh, the visibility, the convenience. When times are hard, if I got to work to get there, I'm not doing it. Yep, there was a period last summer we didn't end up signing any of the leases. Uh, we have one retail building, but like three or four tenants in a row came with COVID language. Basically, if we get shut down, we don't owe rent and we don't ever owe it again. It was kind of wild. We didn't end up signing anything, but it, you kind of prove a good point. The last few uh, folks we've started negotiating with, it's kind of gone away. I think it was like a last summer thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of what we've seen. I mean, I still try and throw it in on these ones that yeah. I'm working on, but you just recognize that if you run a good business, when COVID happens, everybody's in the same boat. Yep. And some of that too, I think what I've found on the landlord front, I think what COVID showed me is who do I want to work with Yeah. and who do I want to avoid yep. and their response to that. Nobody, I don't expect anybody to have the right playbook and the right answer. Yep. Treat me like a decent human and like that I'm a person and and have that conversation with me. And a couple of the landlords, they came around, but it was too bad. You just got to deal with it. Yeah. And, and it goes back to not taking it serious. And a few months down the road, like we need to, this is more serious than we thought. So I have a lot of respect for the landlords that said, let's talk about this. How can we make this happen? And so I think that's what you'll see more of. At least people, are you going to be willing to work with me yeah. uh, when this stuff comes up? All right. One more. I promise this is the last one. But you, a lot of the buildings you go into are multi-tenant, right. which means no matter how well you run your brand and run your operation, if the tenant next door is a slob and a junk, you know, you could... How do you kind of mitigate that risk? Is a lot of it A locations, good landlords? Um, but how do you make sure that you're not going to get into a situation where your problem isn't you, it's the guy next door? Yeah, it's it's during the lease negotiations, just fighting hard for that language. Yeah. And that comes up and it's what hill you're ready to die on. Yeah. And some of that because it does. It I'm next to the vet clinic at one of my stores. Yeah. I had a lot of concerns. I don't want to hear dogs barking when I'm trying to eat. Yeah. I don't want to smell a bunch of stuff when I'm have guests in the building. And so you you ride in some protections and landlords can acknowledge that and and do things to make sure that you have some safeguards in there. Um and make a decision if it's worth doing. In this case, the vet clinic, they're not an overnight kind of stay and they, they put in some extra soundproofing in between the walls to ensure that there'd be no barking. 
But that's one of those areas where you can control only what you can. And so for me and my attorney, when we negotiate at least those are some areas we fight really hard for tight language. I'll give on other areas, but I've got to take care of what I can. And, and if you're impacting that, it does, it affects us. And so you need to know that your landlord's willing to step up for that yep. and recognize the value that you bring. And having that conversation is important. Do you have a childhood experience that you kind of remember vividly that shaped who you are today? I don't think I have one experience in particular. Uh, growing up, my parents, my mom in particular, I was raised by a single mom and she was very open with us about where we were financially, about where we were in life. And I think that helped give me an awareness at a very early age. Yep. And so as I go about interacting with people, uh, like socially awkward, because I'm just hyper aware of what's happening in this situation, but it's yeah. also made me uh, very uh, attuned to where people are. And it gave me a lot of my work ethic. Yep. I think uh, I had to start working at a very early age and I want, not that I had to, but I want to help contribute and give back. And so a lot of that was driven after watching my mom go through the work that she did and knowing the hard, the struggles and the hardships that we faced and yep. so being inspired to do more for that uh, and give back and, and be very protective and loyal to somebody. Yep. I love it. Uh, what's the best advice you've been given in the, maybe in business or as it relates to the restaurant industry? Is there something that you think about often? Being your own advocate, I struggled with a lot of confidence issues early on. Yep. Uh, we sat down with with the, the private equity group that bought Chicken Salad Chick from corporate. It was right after Maggie and I signed our deal and we sat across the table and the chairman of the board said, if this was Shark Tank, I wouldn't have sold to you. Oh, wow. I think you guys need to stay here. <laughs> and we'd already I had the moving truck lined up. We were ready to go. And I think it planted a seed of, I don't know what I'm doing. I knew I was going to work as hard as I could. I yeah. mean, I'd work till I die before I quit. Yeah. And, but it planted that seed of, you don't know what you're doing. And so when I came here, it's just, you tell me what I need to do and I'll follow that. Yep. Um, and, and so early on had some mentors and even just friends that say, you're a capable individual. Nobody's any smarter than you. They might do things differently. Uh, so ask the questions and, and fight for yourself. And that was helpful just to go change the framework of how I approached business in general, uh, but relationships and um, advocating for myself, asking the questions and uh, not being afraid to get in somebody's face and say, this isn't right or whatever it might be. And, and which I did to the chairman. I'm glad he didn't like revoke our franchise agreement, but uh, it worked out. All right, I'm going to put you on the hot spot for Maggie right now. Y'all work together. Yeah. And you're married and your parents. How do you separate everything or do you or how do you make it work? Yeah. So it was it's been one of the greatest things that we've done working together. Certainly the hardest thing as well. And some of that was we learned early on to set boundaries. Would you live together and you work together? It the work doesn't ever stop. Right. It, and so those early days, the two of us were at the restaurant together all the time. I mean, just in our different roles. So when we would drive home, we found out early on, we'll talk about business on the way home. And then as soon as we get in the house, it's done. Yep. And, and so as we've grown and we've added some teams and we're not having to be there as much, it's still evolved because as a small business owner, I'm the final stop for everything. Right. And, and so when we go on vacation, it's always something's coming in. So learning how to set those boundaries and the expectation of 
we're not going to talk about it here, but you're going to give me an hour here or yeah. I'm going to give you space there. And with our kids too, trying to set an example of when to turn it off. And I still struggle with this, <laughs> um, but bringing them into the business at times too, to understand what 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 we do and to see it. And I mean, our daughter's two and a half and our son is five weeks now. So they got Congrats, a lot of runway. Man. Thank you. That's awesome. Um, but setting that example, but yeah, working with Maggie has been fantastic. And I could not have done it without her yep. in those early days. And we talked about that. We didn't have any kids, but if we'd had a kid yep. and she had to be at home more, I had to be at home more, we wouldn't have been able to do it. And so somebody that is right there with you that understands it, uh, it's huge, but setting those boundaries is so important so that it doesn't consume you. There's more to life than just the business. For sure. No, I can't, I can't imagine. Uh, that's she's really a great cool. boss though, by the way, I want everybody to know that <laughs> there she's you go. my boss and there she's you go. the best boss I've ever had. I was teeing that up for you, man. <laughs> I was teeing that up for you. All right, man. How can people, uh, get in touch with you or the stores? How yeah. can people support you? Yeah. So we're really active on Facebook. Go to chicken salad chick. Dot com And then you can find our location pages. There's links to Facebook or just search for us there. My company has a website, jmhosp.com. And so that's where we update all of our locations. We share news about upcoming locations um, like Midlothian that'll hopefully open this summer. So some updates there. Um, and then LinkedIn, we've got a LinkedIn page for the business, JM Hosp. What's your Twitter handle? John M. Schistler. I'm trying to get more active. I'm inspired by uh, I know by you got all to. the action that's going on there. <laughs> well, man, thank you so much for joining. This has been uh, in the making, and I'm really glad we got to spend time together today. Thank you. I'm humbled to be here. It's great catching up. Cool. Hey, everyone. It's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating, or write a quick review. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.